You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. On this episode of Chicago Writes, the podcast of the Chicago Writers Association, we hear from authors Jill Chrisman and Gary D. Wilson, our remaining Book of the Year winners. Both Wilson and Chrisman are educators as well as writers. They reveal tips for writers and discuss their award-winning books. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. In reading the short stories from Those Who Favor Fire, by Book of the Year winner Gary D. Wilson, a collection of sublime character studies, I found myself plucking out details from my own life, like gliding barefoot across gravel, moments I had long forgotten. That is the magic of this collection, the ability to connect with ancient memories or to view life from another's perspective. Explorations only possible through fiction writing. Wilson's eye for detail approaches the holy. Each story left me screaming for more, while eagerly luxuriating in the discovery of the next. Gary D. Wilson holds an MFA in fiction writing from Bowling Green State University in Ohio and taught fiction writing and literature at John Hopkins University before moving to Chicago, where he taught fiction writing at the University of Chicago's Graham School. He was nominated for the Pushcart Prize, and his short story collection was a finalist for the University of Pittsburgh Press, Drew Hines Literature Prize, and the Iowa Short Fiction Award. His third novel, The Narrow Window, it will be released in March 2024 by Roundfire Books, an imprint of Collective Inc. Gary, I'm so sorry that uh, I was so busy writing your introduction that there wasn't any time left over to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind of introduction. I, I have to say this was a, a, a truly wonderful collection of stories, maybe one of the best collection of short stories that uh, that I've ever read. But l- let me first here just say welcome to uh, Chicago Writes, brother. Well, thank you very much. Let me begin here. You caught the writing bug in, in high school ab- about 10 years ago, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you were kind of hooked on writing uh, from a teacher back in high school. Yes. Yes, I had an excellent English teacher um, who used to, um, it was the first time I'd ever witnessed this, but she used to read Shakespeare to the class. She spent maybe 15 minutes at the beginning of a class and then have somebody else read and uh, so forth. And I I just, I fell in love with the language and uh, started you know, doing a bunch of really uh, juvenile kinds of writing, mainly <clears throat> the my camera, uh, tough detective model, uh, and those were all pretty awful. And my my writing interest grew as I and I <laughs> like too many other people majored in English. <laughs> so ended <laughs> and that you know where that gets you 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 were uh, the face to the perennial joke yes exactly <laughs> but i'm glad i did 
Indeed, I have to say, after reading your book, uh, I'm, I'm pretty glad that you did too, man. But all that mastering any language is not at all easy and truly takes a lifetime, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's uh, one of the things I get the most pleasure out of with writing is the revision process. I, I'm pretty careful with language as I'm composing, mm. but it's the, it's the finalizing of uh, sentences and words and rhythms that that fascinate me in the end. That that exploration of rhythm kind of started when you were with the Peace Corps in Africa, right? You started writing poetry. Uh, I did write some poetry, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I don't, I, I had ideas for fiction, but I, I really didn't have time to concentrate on them. So I, I, and I foolishly thought poetry would be quicker, <laughs> which of course yeah. it's not. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It, it, it was something, and as my wife tells me, uh, most of my poems read like um, prose poems. So <laughs> I, I guess it was a way of uh, sublimating my desire to write fiction. But there's there's a natural rhythm in prose. Oh, there is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like there is with language, but it. But I think it's it, it's it's expressed more purposefully in in prose, right? I I I tend to think so, but that's what I write. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm prejudiced in that regard. I've found writing poetry or or reading Shakespeare and and Renaissance prose like Petrarch and and Boccaccio really helps me find those necessary rhythms um, that are critical for a writer. How how did poetry feed your narrative fiction? I I think it made me uh, much more appreciative of. Uh, the need for precision and uh, really paying close attention to to what you're saying and how you're saying it. Yeah, yeah, that rhythm really comes through comes through strongly in pieces like the very heartbreaking "A Place Like Harry's," uh, in which you write, "Quote: Lou Olson, barefoot and lanky in jeans and a t-shirt, bends at the waist, watery eyes squinted." finger poised under his red nose. And then there's a new paragraph. He sneezes, go right to the next paragraph, which is which is a critical um, a critical observation here. Uh, Justin Foote asked for the master key. He turns the lock and pushes. They both take a step back. Um, first and foremost, because when somebody sneezes, it stops everything. Uh, you use it as a break, uh, a punctuation, um, and and as a transition, which is just beautiful. If I back up a little bit and, and say that when I start writing a story, many times the uh, internal rhythms of, of the prose suggest themselves. I, I know it comes from my head, but, but it, it sort of gets inside my brain to the extent that uh, when something like that happens, it may not be entirely tension, intentional, yeah. but it just feels right. 
it, it looked right. It felt right. And uh, I thought it was just a, uh, just a really beautiful um, exercise in not only rhythm, but the malleability of language. It, it also showcases a really keen observation of the human condition, man. Well, I, I try. <laughs> I'll, I'll just stay, stay that way. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to fill that uh, that that in in here in just a moment. I mentioned in the intro that you have an MFA, but uh, I read a powerful answer in an interview that you gave at blogcritics.org uh, in which you talk about whether to MFA or not to MFA for mm. a writer. And 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 I'd love I'd love you to riff on that uh, for just a moment because it was such a beautiful answer. Well. Some of the best writers I've known don't have MFAs. Yep. Uh, it, it, they they read, you know, all yep. the time. Yeah, and I honestly believe that's how a writer learns writing. In fact, there there was a woman at one time who had a had a ranch in Arizona, mm -hmm. and she would invite budding writers to come and spend X amount of time at, at she had outlying cabins where people could house themselves. And the only uh, requirement from her was that people had to choose what they would consider their favorite or one of their favorite books mm -hmm. and copy it verbatim. Wow. So they had to concentrate very hard on what they were doing. And it was her idea that that more than anything else would, would help develop their, their writing skills. And to go back to your question, hmm? I think the main thing, of, well, there are two things that I think a, a master's in fine arts can do. That is, it can give you a, a, a network of fellow writers that you might you probably over time would yeah. develop but but that's an immediate thing you're all doing the same thing for a couple of years and sharing the same experiences and thoughts and so forth so that is an important thing to take away from an mfa the other is that you have time to write that's basically what you're there for yeah in life, that's not always the case. So, you know, you also broke it down like this. Uh, if uh, if you're going for a if you're deciding whether to go for an MFA, uh, are you going to use it for teaching? Uh, because if you're just going to write, then you don't necessarily need that. Again, going back to that um, that reading and doing, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think that's very much the case. It's the important thing is to write. And you improve with each project and you learn new things. You learn what doesn't work. And that's critical <laughs> to, yeah. to the, whole, the whole writing process. So I guess yeah. while we're here, um, what are, what are your, who are your favorite authors or, or what are your, your favorite books? Um. That's always hard, but I, yeah. 
I go back to when I was in my developmental phase, Hemingway was my hero. I know he's out of favor with a lot of people now, but he is still, I consider him one of the great writers of the American scene anyway, and probably on the world scene. I can, um, I can see some of that in, in your writing in particular of dialogue. Mm-hmm. I, I, he, he, I think is the, the master, you know, he used to talk about the iceberg uh, metaphor for writing that most of what you gain from writing is below the surface. It's not on the surface. And he, he very consciously strips everything as, as bare as he can. I've always walked away with a real sense of, of pretty deep things going on. So I, I admire that. I also, uh, almost on a flip from that, love Marques uh, and, and the use of magical realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the South American writers like Borges and, and such were influential as well. I think... Uh, a person who doesn't get a whole lot of uh, exposure is, Mar- I think it's Mary Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, it's Marilyn. First book of hers that I read was Housekeeping, and the years ago, and it it was just mesmerizing to me. I loved it, and so I've kept up with her writing. And a good friend in Baltimore, Stephen Dixon, who uh, was probably the best known of any writer that I was friends with, but he, uh, he was magical writer, I think. And, uh, a very, he was the kind of guy he, he wrote every day of every year he was alive. Wow. And I asked him, I said, what's your goal with that? And he said, well, I like to finish one page a day. Mm-hmm. So, you think about that that's 365 pages a year pretty good output and he he just he published book after book after book and sort of sort of the same subject matter and style and i very much admired his his writing well there are just a lot of a lot of writers i i admire I, uh, there there's some really wonderful people on the scene right now who who are doing new and exciting things with with prose there are so many threads in this book one that i i found came through really powerfully and maybe because i've faced this so many times in my own life uh, and that is a person coming to terms with the personal and widely diverse nature of our mortality hmm that's, I guess, been a long, long-term theme that has uh, mm-hmm. captivated me. And I think anybody who thinks seriously about life has to think about death. I've, I've long been interested in how people deal with with their mortality and other people's mortality. I found that thread throughout the throughout the the book in Camille. There's also this, there's an essence 
imbued within the words that describe a couple's relationship, which only people who have spent a life together really understand. I'd love some thoughts about the necessity of maturing into your writing voice during the writing of a story, but also across a lifetime. I'm not sure it's a conscious thing, Mm -hmm. as much as an acquired thing. The longer you live, the more you're forced to come to terms with with life. And that I think that affects the way you think about it. And consequently, the way you think is, in essence, the way you write. Yeah, uh, I, I think the two things kind of evolve slowly and mesh eventually. Um, I I was uh, interested myself when I put the the collection together um, because I had had a bunch of stories laying around that I hadn't really looked at for for a while. I'd been working on novels. Mm-hmm. And so I I got them out, consciously wanting to put together a collection. Yeah. Uh, and when I started looking at the ones that are in this collection, I was pretty amazed at at the commonality between a lot of them. They're mm-hmm. they're different stories, of course. They're about different people, but many of the themes and many of the issues that are that are joined are similar and, and i was uh, i was both pleased and surprised at the coherence there's a foundational difference between writing a short story and a novel isn't there one one great analogy was that if you're writing a short story i mean take a house mm-hmm. if you're writing a short story you're probably going to write about one room in that house if you're writing a novel, you may write about the first floor, you may write about the second floor, or you may write about the whole house. It, it depends on the scope. Um, so it is a it is a little uh, novel writing is a more expansive mm-hmm. uh, investigation of life. For me, yeah. that's what my writing concerns is life in general. I, I do think that short stories can be more concise, give more immediate insight into certain things. Um, but they're not meant to be mini novels. No, 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 not at all. It's it's a it is a different approach to prose writing. You were talking about uh, the evolution of of one's voice and style Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. your ability to know what's going to be a story and what's what needs to be a novel becomes almost instinctive with time it isn't in the beginning but uh, as you the more you write the more you come to realize the difference and what needs to be one or the other in camille uh, you write damn near perfect paragraph uh, that, uh, again, harkens back to um, that uh, extreme efficiency of of words and descriptions uh, that we, we spoke about with, with Hemingway a bit. Y- you say this, doors bang, the trunk lid wumps, 
there is a strange quiet between the rushes of traffic on the highway, the night air heavy, full of smells, mud and salt and fish, full of presence, as palpable as warm dough, mosquitoes clinging like a second screen to the window. You cover so much descriptive ground with a beautiful economy of words in that small paragraph. Thank you. When I, I came to that paragraph, I was bowled over. I, I, it was it was just perfect. Thank you very much. Again, from, from Camille, uh, you write this. And now the wind pressing, releasing, rain clawing at the sides of the trailer house, a sheet of corrugated metal shrieking as it rises, falls, rises on the roof of a paint shop at the rear of the property, empty black solvent drums stacked by the front door, falling and rolling, rumbling down the drive, off into the rising water from the canal. Trees sway like drunken giants, each gust stronger, longer. There are moments he can't take a breath. The The book is just full of these, these gorgeous passages. My brother-in-law read the, read the book, and he did something he said he'd never done before, and that was he read the final paragraph of the final mm-hmm. story out loud to his wife. And I I found that that interesting that he he felt compelled to read it out loud. And well, it feels that one felt like a like a family memory. Well, it it actually was. Okay, it was, it was based on um, my attending my father's funeral mm-hmm. and the interactions of the family around that. Not totally autobiographical, but there are a lot of a lot of things like the church basement uh-huh. I mean, if, if you've ever been in a small town church grew up in small towns brother <laughs> it's uh it's you can't get away from those sensations no. and, uh, particularly the mustiness of of that and which kind of carries over to the people and to uh-huh. <laughs> to yeah. the occasion it's that kind of thing that I I really relish in in being able to to write about things that that I care about and uh, and make them make them available to other people. So let me ask you about this. Then, in what you don't know, you write this: the planes are more reassuring from the air than from the ground. At thirty five thousand feet, you can see outlines of rivers and farms and roads and towns. Their patterns make sense. The idea of westward expansion seems reasonable, that people would want to come settle here, to live here, to raise their families, and to die here generation after generation. But on the ground, it's more difficult to maintain such a clear perspective, where there is only sky and the land and the horizon in a single day, sun up to sundown, can last forever. I'm torn over whether that is a celebration or a lament? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good question. As you probably have surmised, I grew up in a small town in Kansas. I I grew up in a a small town um, outside of Chicago here, but spending summers in in a couple of um, small towns in uh, Central and... Well, that's very similar. it's It's a place that I could hardly wait to get out of yeah. and I never went back to 
except in my mind. I I could I could not uh, get away from the, <laughs> that place, and it it has appeared in various forms and in a lot of my work. It just getting right in uh, you, you set uh, in your second novel, getting right in Kansas, right? Yeah, yeah, and the first one is set in Kansas too. Yeah. Um, it's part of me. Definitely part of me, and and it's it's a thing that, um, as in what you just read, I think it's it's I I constantly try to figure it out, you know that that relationship and the uh, ambivalence. I mean, it's been certainly been a rich source of uh, image and memory and so forth. At the same time, it's in a real investigation of place, both physical and emotional for me and uh, trying to, well, as I said, figure it out. I almost want to put those words into a folk song because they're so, they're so perfectly defining of, of a, of the heartland of, of this nation. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty fascinating place. Mm -hmm. It does. It, it, I, I like that image. I remember flying. Actually, I was going back to visit my sister, I think, and I was flying over eastern Kansas, southeastern Kansas. There was a beautiful break in the clouds, mm -hmm. and I could see the, quote, lay of the land very clearly. And that that whole that whole sequence of thoughts came to me that it that it made sense from up there, but when you get on the ground, it doesn't make so much sense. It feels at once intimate and overwhelming, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's the, that's the uh, that sense of there being there is a horizon because of the Earth is round but that's the only reason for yeah miles and miles and miles out there and when you're in on the heart of the plains it's it's very much like um not the far south in illinois but up in this in this part of illinois is just flat as a pancake yep and that's uh people laugh about kansas being like that it is and, and but, sometimes sometimes the the horizon the the land merges at the horizon with with the sky to create this beautiful continuum oh yeah yeah it does it does and also early settlers particularly women went crazy literally crazy because of the isolation and the yeah. <laughs> the constant wind the uh, you know this pretty brutal life mm-hmm mm-hmm the auction you you make reference to red foley uh too old to cut the mustard uh you and me that he did with kitty wells first red foley is such a homespun reference i grew up listening to red uh hank williams and johnny cash uh because my dad was was a huge huge fan of, of theirs but where did that story come from it feels very very personal the main character uh was was based on my grandfather my mm -hmm mother's father mm -hmm. and by the way you could have set that story in any little town in america yeah dewberry was was an interesting person to me i had no dewberry came out of nowhere 
<laughs> and I loved it, you know, that wandering eye that made it so mysterious. And something that, that I dealt with in that story that was fascinating to me about small towns in general mm -hmm. was the the amount of kind of petty jealousy that can consume a place, consume people. It does in larger places too, but it but it's a it's one thing I think that probably has fascinated me about mm -hmm. a place like my hometown was <clears throat> it, it's a microcosm. Yes. Of, of America writ large. And it's interesting to me I've been in Chicago now 20 years, but it still has many uh, elements of, of small town life mm -hmm. it, it, a, an intense identification with neighborhood kind of provincial yeah and and if you ask people where they're from they're not from chicago it's uh, it's it's interesting to me um in terms of my writing the uh, the small town is a perfect place to start an examination of larger life issues and and so forth in in uh, my first novel sing ronnie blue mm -hmm. i had a and still have a real fascination with who is the have who are the haves and who are the have nots and never the twain shall meet kind mm -hmm. of idea and that story which actually was based on a, a, a would-be bank robbery in the town where i grew up mm -hmm. it happened well after i left but i heard about it mm. from, from my family and uh it just it rung a bell and i mm. said i've got to think about this and see what i can do with it and so that was the story came from that wonderful gary d wilson is one of CWA's Book of the Year winners for his wonderful collection of short stories for those who favor fire. His latest novel, The Narrow Window, is out March 2024. The website is GaryDWilson.com. We'll link to that in the notes below. Thanks, Gary. This was, this was great, man. Well, thank you for having me. I should let people know that they can hear because we, we will only be able to run portion of this a half hour or so on the uh, Chicago Rights podcast. But if they want to hear our full conversation unedited on my Playtime uh, Playcast podcast on Spotify and Amazon, be uh, that'll be up probably a few days after that this, this episode is posted at uh, chicagorights.org. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. And now my conversation with Professor Jill Christman. I think what makes a great story is the author's ability to remind us the larger world outside the room of their story. 
creating that ever important feedback loop of grounding versus ego and perspective in the light. That was my first impression of Jill Christman's powerful new memoir. Jill Christman is the author of If This Were Fiction, a love story in essays, a lyrical, sometimes blushing, sometimes shocking, and eminently insightful memoir, and one of CWA's Books of the Year. Beware, she is lithe and quick on her rhetorical feet. Jill Christman is also the author of Dark Room, A Family Exposure, and Borrowed Babies, Apprenticing for Motherhood. She is a professor in the creative writing program at Ball State University, a senior editor of River Teeth, a journal of nonfiction narrative, and the executive producer or an executive producer for the podcast Indelible Campus Sexual Violence. Uh, the website is jillchristman.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-M-A-N uh, for those who are keeping score at home. Welcome and congratulations. Thank you so much, Bill, and thank you for your careful reading and that lovely introduction. I will will try to be quick, as you said that I promised I would be, <laughs> with my <laughs> rhetorical responses. Uh, uh, it was no, just I, a, I, I found it. I found joy. it really, really enjoyable. Since since we're talking to other writers, I'd like to start here because I suspect we are close to the same age. I'm probably a fair sight older than you. That is. Uh, we grew up with the tactile connection with writing on paper rather than the ubiquity of computers today, right? This is from a piece in Cognitive Science and Neuroimaging uh, from this past week, February 16th, 2024. Writing by hand may increase brain connectivity more than typing on a keyboard. This is by Deborah Pinchner. Quote, a new study has investigated neural networks in the brain during hand and type writing. Uh, the researchers showed that connectivity between different brain regions is more elaborate when letters are formed by hand. This improved brain connectivity, which is crucial to memory building and information encoding, and may indicate that writing by hand supports learning. Uh, the story goes on to say that writing with pen and paper has been found to improve spelling accuracy and memory recall. And I'll post a link to the to this article in the notes uh, below uh, because it's it's worth a, it's worth a longer read. Jill, I suffered a stroke almost two years ago. And the first thing that I did as part of my overall recovery was to reteach my brain and hand uh, how to write and draw again. Uh, I would love Jill Chrisman's technique for organizing thoughts that will or 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 may become a book or a story. Do you write things out? And if you do, how does that uh, aid your writing and style? Um, wow, that that was a great question, Bill. And you've given me enough to think about for about a year. Um, <laughs> and I think I would begin with the fact that I I think I do too much work on the keyboard these days, honestly. Mm -hmm. And and it's true, back in the day, I actually was um, raised partially as a teenager on a mountaintop in Northeastern Washington State where I rode my horse to school and went to a one-room schoolhouse. Wow. Um, and you know, we didn't have any laptops then. <laughs> and so I did a lot of my uh, early reading, this sounds very romantic and it kind of is actually, a lot of my early reading, um, 
which was a lot of Steinbeck because that's what was in the cabin. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm happy about that. And writing by kerosene lamp and certainly longhand when I was just starting out as a writer uh, many, many, many years ago. And then I remember reading, I, I want to say this was in Natalie Ginsburg's really important text to those of us back in the in the 80s and 90s, writing down the bones, right? Mm -hmm. I believe that it was in that book where she said something about how there's like a connection between the brain and the heart and the hand, right? And so that, and I do often feel, so I guess technique wise, um, connected to your question, that that sort of feeling a physicality between memory and heart and brain and the hand. I'm, I also draw, I come from a family of visual artists. All right. And so I love to draw and I try to, and I try to, anytime I'm working on a, a book, which is, I guess is always, I try to be doing some sort of physical manual. You know, I want to go like this, some kind of mm -hmm. manual art mm -hmm. at the same time. Like when I was writing Dark Room, my first book, which has a lot of pretty tough stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would go from my writing desk um, to the ceramic studio and I would feel as if my, my hands were somehow bringing, not, not just bringing the clay up off the wheel, but bringing, I, this is going to sound overwrought, but like memory itself. Like I would feel as if yeah. I could actually get my hands on it literally. Oh, I, I, and and I, I think clay is, is a wonderful uh, metaphor for, for pulling those memories out. Right. Yeah. And it would feel that way. It would feel like I could actually, uh, especially in dealing with traumatic memory, that, that it would, it would give me kind of a physical portal to those things. Yeah. And so I think that that along with just for all of us, just taking a walk, you know, like when you feel like you're smashing your head against the keyboard, get into your body and out into the world and let, and let that uh, try to see something that has nothing to do with what you're writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you may just find the end to that thing. But I also think that what the article that you brought up, which I look forward to reading, um, I mean, this is why I'm hoping they bring cursive back to the schools, right? <laughs> so like I have kids, one of whom learned cursive and then one of whom did not because it was the next, it was during the phase. And I'm, I'm hearing that they're starting to, because of studies like this one, mm -hmm. um, connection between handwriting and learning that they're th that they're thinking about bringing it back and I hope they do that's how old-fashioned I am but I also believe in the science <laughs> there's a there's a connection to to the body but and and I I think there's there's a quickness that even if you're very proficient on the computer just doesn't translate as smoothly as as that brain hand connection in, yeah. in getting out thoughts quickly, but also, uh, and, and we'll talk more about this with, with your writing, um, getting and getting out the rhythm of, of those words. And you're, I know your husband is a poet and I would be curious to know if he hand writes, uh, or has notebooks of, of, of his, yes. Books, or yeah. Yes, he does. He does. He, I, I don't know if he always writes every poem out by hand, but yeah. Yeah. Many, many notebooks. And also he's done the, he, he went through a typewriter period too. We have a lot of old typewriters up in our shared office yeah, yeah. where, you know, also a physical, also a physical thing, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. So, and, and I think that it can be great for not just the generative part of writing, but the, the revision, right. Um, yeah. Where we get it out of, we feel like we can move words around so easily in, mm -hmm. Because you can copy and paste, but there's also the I think that the 
the monitor gives our work a false frame, like yeah. in, in false edges, right? Mm -hmm. Where when we can get it off of that computer and in and into the world where we can manipulate it manually, mm -hmm. like literally sometimes with scissors, right? And move mm -hmm. around pieces. Because I think that in 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 all writing, but maybe I really am an essayist in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I and I feel that what I am doing as an essayist is finding connections that I didn't know were there. Like it, it feels like an inquiry to me the entire time, like a search. Yeah. I'm in it, in it for the discovery. If I already know a thing or think I know a thing, then I, I really probably won't even approach it on the page. Mm -hmm. But that, that part of trying to find new connections. And, and, and I think that that's, that's connected to what you're talking about with this tactile connection. And I think from, from an editing standpoint, you know, I, I've found, uh, first of all, reading out loud an entire uh, an entire book or entire piece or entire chapter uh, is is important to hearing the words, but actually physically holding holding a, a printed book in my hand makes editing so much easier. I catch so many more things that way than I do just editing on on a computer screen. Same. Yeah. Same. And I just, I think that we reach a just point with the, all the text on the screen that we just can't take it anymore. Too. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an editor and, a, you know, I, as an editor, as a teacher, as a writer myself, mm -hmm. right. Sometimes I'm just like, please, would you print that out and give it to me? <laughs> and I am sorry for the trees and I care for them deeply. Um, and we need to solve that problem too, but mercy. <laughs> and and I can imagine as a teacher that there's, there's a lot of room for for critique in people's handwriting. Um, <laughs> but I remember I remember going through those rhetoric classes in college and having to handwrite an essay. Yeah. And the the emotional connection because you can you can break a computer if you if you bound on it too much. But boy, you you can you can scribble and scratch and yeah draw nasty faces uh, yeah. about something that you're writing or poke or you know make that exclamation point just as dark as can be um yeah. <laughs> you know and 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 that that i think adds in a, a level of of connection between uh between heart and the words on a page yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely all right on to the good stuff um, okay Tell us a little bit about the book and what motivated you to write, uh, if this were fiction, a love story in essays. Thank you for your question. Mm -hmm. um, I started the, uh, the the first essay that appears in if this were fiction is called The Sloth. And that is the first one among these that I wrote. Yep. And wow, I want to say that was 20 years ago. So the truth is, is that I consider myself, I used to consider myself a memoirist first and I kind of wrote in book length form. Mm -hmm. And then this is for the academics out there. When I got my first tenure track job, um, it was Mark, the poet who pointed this out to me that in order to get tenure, I was gonna have to finish some things more quickly. Mm -hmm. And honestly, truly back then 20 years ago, the essay, the essay was just sort of, finding its its new traction right in the literary world um before that i didn't really even understand that it was that i, I mean i knew about montaigne i knew about the i knew about the essays who had come before me um 
certainly I was a, a fan of um, Joan Didion from way back, but I didn't really realize that, that it was some that it was a form for me. So the last 20 years, I kind of threw myself into learning how to write an essay. Mm-hmm. And it and it was a very much of an individual essay by essay kind of pursuit for me, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was just in the last few years where I was like, oh, you know what? I might have a book or two or three. Like yeah. I've, I've written a lot of essays during that time. Um, and, and I didn't want it to be, when I decided to try to put together a collection, I really didn't want it to be a bunch of essays between two covers. I wanted it to exist as a book together mm-hmm. and, and have a reason for the essays that I chose to, to, to be in there. And that's when I realized that, I mean, the subtitle here is really real, that it's a love story in essays. I realized that it began in the tragedy of the love story that was with my fiance who was killed in a car accident when we were both so young. Um, My husband, Mark, the poet we've already mentioned a couple of times and our children and most fundamentally for, for me and the, the, the writer and, and mom and teacher um, and human that I, that I was able to become through all this. So I wanted it to kind of stretch across time in that way and look at, some difficult things through this through this lens of wanting to be part of a of a loving community and world and then organizationally speaking i mentioned this i come from a family of visual artists and so we think and we are taught from a very young age that we're to consider the rule of threes right and the way we work in composition mm-hmm. and so i basically knew it would be in three parts and then lo and behold and much to my great fortune um the cummings poem that um a young poet named mark whispered in my ear very early on in our courtship became public domain in the very year that i wanted to publish this book and i was like oh i can use the whole thing of since feeling is first and and use that as a to build the book and so there's the romantic part there's the tragic part and, and one of the things that makes me super happy uh, is that often people can't believe that I didn't just write all these essays in order, that they go in the order that they came. And and that feels like magic to me. So well, it, it comes together as a very cohesive story. First of all, I was reading I was reading it less as essays as more and more as chapters in, in that continuum. Um, it's a beautiful book I fully enjoyed reading it it deserves first of all a read but a full afternoon to adequately discuss I wish we had that time but let me ask you this I I found a sort of contemporary Dante-esque divine comedy an epic love poem about your family with a with a subtext of healing as you lead us through at least some of these levels of hell from abuse to losing a fiance uh, and the fears and worries of of motherhood am i far off that no that was that was a beautiful summary i i should have put that on the book bill that was that's exactly i mean you gotta you gotta call me before this stuff goes out yeah, I will. Next time I'll do it. I'll call you. But yeah, I mean, I think that you touched on all the things. I mean, it's this, it is this kind of levels of, 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 of circling around these ideas of trauma, but then also then, then love, but then also knowing this, how do I move forward to the next thing? Right. And not raise my children to live inside my fear, yeah. which has been, you know, it's, I think it's a struggle for all parents, but um, it it felt like a particular struggle for me, certainly, that I, I wanted them to be able to 
people, you know, you hear about this a lot with, with writing and, and motherhood and, and fatherhood to a lesser extent, but, um, oh, if you have children, it'll ruin your writing, right? You'll never write again. And also it'll be terrible. It'll be about, but I truly feel that having children made my writing so much better because for the very simple, simple reason that the stakes are higher. The stakes are so high, right? How well, could I bother to write anything that doesn't matter? Yeah, I don't yeah. have the time. We're, so we're, we're going to dive into that a little bit deeper uh, here coming up. I, I wanted to say this, uh, no spoilers, but your summation at the end is beautifully and powerfully poetic. It's a credit to your ability to invest us in the story that I was I was really deeply moved and a bit heartbroken at uh, concluding the story. In my war memoir, I sought a summation about war and surviving. A proper summation is just as important as a proper opening in memoir writing. Would would you agree? I mean, you know, as a teacher, yeah, like the middle matters too, though, right? It does. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're ultimately, you're ultimately telling a story instead of fictional characters, you're telling it about yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think that the beginning should, and I always tell my students, you know, life doesn't come with plot that there's, there's mm -hmm. always a, a level to which we're imposing that. Then again, I think in an essay or in depends, a- It depends on the storyteller and, and the, 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 exactly. the ability for the storyteller to to find those 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 dramas and those comedies that are imbued in in life, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I think that we're again looking for the connections, but then like the beginning should, in a way, and I kind of, I mean, I think that there is a way in which the sloth does sort of contain that. It's kind of setting up. That's the the very first short essay in the book. Uh huh. And in the way that it kind of contains the concerns of the book, right? Like here is this instigating moment, but also here is this person who's going to take her time with this and try to move forward in love, right? So it contains a lot of the concerns, I think, of the book, which I yep, would look yep. for. And then as we get through to the end, I, I do want, I mean, it's always my hope in essays and in longer works to send the reader off somehow changed and with mm -hmm. something to carry with them. And if if that was your experience, I am I am honored, right? So that that's what I that's what I hope for. Um, so that summation, then I'm hoping we'll do that. It'll both be satisfying, but also give the reader something to take away that might not have anything to do with Jill Christman, frankly. I, I want to focus on 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 that aspect, the sloth aspect, uh, a little bit. I spoke with one of your fellow Book of the Year winners uh, last month about her book on death and dying uh your story crystallizes something i've always spoken about with friends and family about loss and recovery and that is it's so painfully slow uh in those first hours and days and months and years my 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 mother uh never got over losing my father and passed away almost two years to the day after his death but Climbing out and rebuilding your life depends upon these sublime and off, often random things and moments, which is key. You write this. Here is fact. A sloth cannot regulate the temperature of his blood. He must live near the equator. I thought I knew slow, but this guy, this guy was slow. What else is slow? Those famous creatures of slow, the snail, the tortoise, they move much faster, much. This slow seemed impossible. Not real, like a trick of my sad head, 
I thought that slow that sloth is as slow as grief. We were numb to the speed of the world. We were temperature. So I'd like to spotlight the structure of that a little bit. The uh, the quote fact about sloths uh, you cite stands alone, a single line separate but bridging two full paragraphs. It's at once poetic and pertinent, a perfect illustration, but you draw it out from the narrative as, as sort of a, a, a spotlight or a highlight. Yeah. First of all, thank you for your careful reading. It really is. Isn't it magic that you can put marks on a page and then reach out to another human who can he- who can read them and then yep. make sense of them yep. better than you could? That's it's a miracle to me every time. So thank you. And also, like in that, like that moment, my understanding of that moment, like the moment is real, mm-hmm. right? Like all that happened uh, as much as I remembered it. And it. It's that was a like I knew that that contained something important that I wanted to say when I started to to try to write it, because I remember that feeling. Now, had I put it into words exactly like I did in what you just read? No, right? And there was that, it was in the writing of it that I did the research where I found out that sloths can't regulate the temperature of their own blood. And, And that was the moment, you put your finger right on it where I was like, oh, Eureka. Right? Like I totally get what happened in that shower that day. Yeah. Right? It was this, I couldn't regulate the temperature of my own blood either. <laughs> like, it just was true that this fact led me to this understanding. That's what, what that's one of those exact, that's a perfect example of connections that I'm talking about, right? It Where, becomes this perfect metaphor for, for the grief of a fiance. Yeah. And that, and it did, it came to me flipped like that too. Like it never was, I never flipped it. Like okay. it was never like the, like grief is as slow as the sloth. Yeah. Like, in my mind, I thought, wow, that sloth is as slow as grief. Like it, it, it's not like I was doing some linguistic um, trickery there. It, that's the way it made sense, right? Mm-hmm. Was in that kind of flipped metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, I like encourage people who are working on their own stories. Like grief is a big thing to talk about, right? And, and that moment with the sloth was a, was a tiny thing in the scale. I think that if we are able to look at those tiny moments. But you build it into this grand sort of world experience. Yeah. Through looking at that, through looking at as closely as I can. Right. And so that's what I tell, you know, folks who are trying to write these stories is that don't set out to write the big grand thing. I didn't even start. I really, when I was writing that, I set out to write about that sloth in the moment of the shower. Right. I wasn't like, I will tell a story about grief and what it means and how it functions and how we survive. Like that was not where I was like, I am going to try to tell this right, like, and do justice to that moment that I had there in the jungles of Costa Rica. And so, um, I mean, that's what I would say to other writers who are struggling with these big things is start small, you know, go for the tiniest thing you can and see what happens. The book is, is structured rather like a diary in, uh, of an attempt to organize thoughts into these these great blocks. Um, that is, you build dialogue into into that greater narrative rather than you know standalone or individual paragraphs or quantities like like is like like we normally do in in writing. I have to say it offered a narrative continuum. And when you were returning to your old neighborhood to find Chad, uh, mm-hmm. I thought it really helped build the tension. Why structure the book in these big block paragraphs, again, like a like a sort of diary form? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're looking, if we're looking specifically at like going back to Plum Island, mm -hmm. I mean, the structure of that one, and a lot of these are, I had not noticed this, a friend pointed this out to me. Uh, he said, Jill, you're always, so many of your essays are structured like this. Uh, you go on a trip, you don't know what's going on, you don't know what you're going to find. <laughs> I was like, that, I was like, yeah, that is both my actual But you life. always find something. <laughs> no, no. I was like, that's both my actual life and and my writing life right there. <laughs> um, I don't know that he meant it fully as a compliment. I think he was sort of baffled by it. Um so, I mean, in going back to Plum Island, I, I think one of my goals as a writer always is to say the truest thing I know how to say. And if I have a gift as a writer, it's that I'm I'm not afraid, like I'm not afraid of all that much when it comes to vulnerability or revealing things. People yep. say like, oh, it's how did you do that? That must've been very scary. And to me, writing is like the safest place I could be because mm -hmm. I know what I'm doing here, right? So even if I have to go in memory to someplace that was hard, writing is the place where I can I can grapple with these really hard things. And going back to Plum Island, however, I added to the dramatic twist um, of actually physically, in a way, putting myself in danger because I needed to go back. Yeah. I, like metaphor wasn't going to work in this case. Like I, I was, tr I was genuinely and truthfully being haunted by those nightmares that he was back for my daughter. Like I, I was not, I was not functioning well. And I was, I was livid also because, because I, I felt as if I had done so much work and all of my writing and all of my life to get to a point where I could, I could live with the abuse that I had suffered as a kid and not be, have my life destroyed by it. Right. And here it was back again. And I was like, this cannot stand. Um, I'm going back to, and, and you know, what's amazing. I have not ever had one of those dreams again. It worked. Wow. Yeah. yeah you, you, you seem to find, you seem to find these great perspectives throughout the book like this. I let myself forget the repression of memory is never as simple as it's pseudoscientific detractors would have us all believe. Pulling out the psychological shovel and burying what hurts us isn't a quackish anomaly. It's human nature. Look around, look inside, and the process of uncovering traumas from our past that we have managed to avoid really seeing for many years is not some kind of therapeutic voodoo. Far from it. Um, that comes across as it should speak to to human healing um regardless of of gender but it it kind of comes across as as a feminine manifesto since chad becomes kind of a, a figurehead of a character slash abuser that predominantly women face right three and five or five and five, five and five depending on on your your yeah. reference right yeah yeah um after after my undergrad, I, I got a literature degree at the University of Oregon um, back in the 90s. And I don't know if you're familiar with the collection of Laurie Moore stories. Um, this is from back in the 90s, too. It's called wow. Self-Help. I recommend it, everybody. Self-Help by Laurie Moore. Um, they're short stories, although some of them read like essay, essays. I love them so much. I discovered them when I was in grad school. And... Um, there's one called How to Become a Writer. Mm -hmm. 
I used to teach it all the time, but I had to stop teaching it because it's so compelling that it would it would make all of my students want to write only in present tense. Um, so, in person. so it's like, I was like, y'all, this is not a good idea. It's very hard to do this. Um, so the first sentence is try to be something, anything else. Um, uh, how to become a writer by Lori Moore. And so I did that, right? I, I, I went into my first job out of college was in a cognitive psychology lab at the University of Oregon doing uh, trauma research with an amazing, brilliant woman um, named Dr. Jennifer Fried. So I know a lot about the way memory works. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I, I was, I worked in the lab for three years and I have continued to be really obsessed with it. And I brought it into my life as a writer and being in, as a memoirist and someone who, who deals with memory, it's never something I can just take for granted, right? I never, I can never write about a memory without interrogating the very nature of memory. Like it's just, it's just the way, well, I also think it's the right thing to do, right? <laughs> because memory is fallible, it's malleable. In that job, I was right on the front lines of the so-called false memory syndrome mm -hmm. um, wars. And so I also have very little patience for it's a debate, I suppose, except for the 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 group, and it's kind of a smallish group actually of of psychologists who would deny memory in the way that we see happening. So that was a kind of a special. The section that you read was sort of special for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could start naming names at this point. But, <laughs> but yeah, and I am not and and as far as a feminist manifesto, thank you. That's my goal always. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but it, it's it's not just that. There's a there's a much there's a much broader narrative that I, that I think connects people. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, you also wrote this for your children, which I think gets to the heart of uh, of of the importance uh, of good memoir writing or just memoir writing. You you write. I want Ella and Henry to know always, and it's okay to tell the truth, uh, to name names and make noise no matter what. I want them to lay down shame and be brave. I want them to be willing to go back when they know there is something they need to see or set free or reclaim. And then I want them to remember that the way is forward. I want them always to let the giving and the taking in of love and sweetness lift them up. I want them to feel light. I want them to know they can fly without crashing. That's that's just just beautiful. But that actually gets to the heart of memoir writing, right? And and a legacy of of your thoughts and memories and experiences. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm. Uh, this is for my children and for my students and really anybody who wants to take this journey with me, right? But yeah. I have yet to meet it a secret that helped anybody, right? I think that shame hides in dark places, right? And that Absolutely. we are often carrying things that Absolutely. others have given us to hold. Yeah. We don't need to hold, right? And so if by my example, inspire anyone to do that for themselves so that they can they can walk out and live in the light, I am a lucky person to have had that that part in, in that transition. So for my children, I mean, this is something I tell them, you know, I'm their mom, right? They're like, mom, <laughs> so, so, um, but it'll be there, right? When they're ready for it. I don't think my son is, is just turned 16. So he's, he's not been 
I don't think he reads a lot of Jill Christman essays. My daughter and my daughter, my daughter is actually a literature and Spanish major at Kenyon College and she okay. works for Kenyon Review um, and she works for a magazine called Sweet, which is edited by Arisa Krungrung, who maybe you've spoken yes, to. Yes, yeah. He won the same prize last year. He's a friend of mine. Yeah, uh, Ira's wonderful. Yeah, I we just, we love Ira. And so um, I think Ella, Ella now will sometimes read read my work. And I, I give both of my children, um, for the record, because I do get this question a lot, like, what do your kids think of it? What do you, <laughs> you know, Mark and I are on even ground because we are allowed, we write about each other. We just do. That's what, that's, we, we made that deal. Now the kids didn't ask for this. They didn't ask to have a memoirs for a mother. So once they reach what I call the age of reason, then they had the choice. Like they could say, don't write about, I mean, I, I try to treat their privacy uh, carefully. I think privacy and secrecy are two different things. So mm-hmm. occasionally I'll write something where it does make one of them, it, it reveals something about them. And then I let them read it first and say whether or not they want me to publish it. And, and if they don't, I just simply don't. There, there are some beautiful, beautiful things uh, throughout this book. And, and I wish I could get to all of them. I can only get to a, a few of them. And so this speaks to an author's ability to remind us of the larger world, as I said in the intro- introduction, outside the room of their story. You wrote this. I'm afraid and I'm ashamed. My daughter drinks clean water, plays in, safe, plays in a safe fenced yard, and receives regular medical care. Here, there are no suicide bombers or child soldiers. How do parents in, say, the West Bank send their children out to school? What an astounding humanistic... I wrote that a long time ago, for the record. I mean, right now, listening to it in the midst of what we're in, of course, it make, I'm now I'm crying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but it, it's such a, it's such a, such a big humanistic thought, which should be common, um, but sadly is missing. But as, as I said, it, it, it goes... It goes back to that that thought that I, I spoke about in the introduction. Yeah, I mean, again, this kind of comes back to the idea that I want to try to say the truest thing. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I, now, now I'm thinking about that larger world and it's making me sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no matter what, you know, what joy I can locate in some mm-hmm. quotidian part of my life here in Muncie, Indiana, where I am so lucky um, to be yeah. surrounded by books and loved yeah. ones and a good dog, you know, <laughs> like I fail as a writer um, if I'm not, if I'm not thinking beyond that, that. It, it's thoughts right. like that, that separates a good, a, a good piece of literature from a great piece of literature at least in my opinion. We we all got to take responsibility for this big world, I think. I mean, I, I, I truly but, believe but that. And... <laughs> on another level, that, that also illustrates uh, another aspect of, of great memoir writing uh, is in making individual reflection universal. That is, like you did with, uh, with pregnancy, which I, I likely will never experience, um, but you make- If you moments... do, I hope you write a memoir about it. I can guarantee you I shall. Okay. But you you make the you make the moments and symptoms and deprivations more familiar, which which I I, I just found beautiful. 
I'm so glad. So you felt like, so there were moments where you felt like the experience of, of pregnancy, like, what did it make you think of? Like when you were thinking about the particularities of my experience with pregnancy? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, so uh, that, that I focused and I, you you were, you were describing a lot of the symptoms that you had and, and some yeah. of the issues and, and even, even fears that you had. So I was able to connect with those on, yeah. on, on a personal level uh, as opposed to a gender level. Um, yeah. and, and that helped bridge that gap for me. Oh, that's good. I'm yeah. happy to hear that. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I, I just spoke with, uh, Ana Castillo about her latest collection of short stories and, uh, uh, and the autobiographical and women-centered perspectives in, in her work. I can't wait to read your experiences, uh, and impressions as you take us along in that life journey with you yeah thank you i'm working on a memoir right now i'm almost at the end i've actually been writing this book for also for 20 years sort of okay. concurrently with this and i had to sit on it for a while and it takes on some pretty serious uh obstetric stuff so i i have been i was just struggling with that i write every day if I have my druthers, which I usually can set up my life. So it is. <laughs> and this morning I was going way back to a, to a time. So it's, I'm glad that I, that you said that to me today, because sometimes I think we can hear the messages that some of these um, very personal stories don't extend out to the larger world, the way that we believe that they, they do and must. And obviously stories about in a, it, uh, about, pregnancy and abortion in a post row world are vital and and we all need to be to be telling them um as loudly as we and as loudly and as personally as we can right indeed, because indeed. these are personal decisions that we make so. do you find that that writing over that extended period of time because some of your memories are very unabashed they're, they're i i want to say extraordinarily honest do you find that writing over a period of time helps you get to a point where you can you can write more honestly about some of those those more intimate subjects? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'm not a person who thinks that you can't like I feel like you could have a thing happen. Let's pick uh, I'll pick something that really did happen. This is an essay that you could read online. They made a little book out of it at Iron Horse Literary Review. It's it's a, they it was they did such a lovely job. It's called Falling. So it's an essay at the center of it of the narrative is this idea that uh, not this idea. My son fell out of a tree uh, very, from very high up. Right? Wow. So so there's that's the kind of narrative of the of the book and then a lot of other things get attached to it all things all things that fall which is everything it turns out once you start thinking about it <laughs> um, but, but like i wrote about that the the day that after it happened right because right. it was all i could think about of course and so in that way like sometimes we hear oh you need to have perspective you need to have but also mm -hmm. like i needed to have the details i needed to have the narrative down and then it was another for me, this was fairly quick. Another five years before I returned to it. Mm -hmm. Because in fact, the child in question said, don't write about that. And then during COVID, <laughs> he changed his mind. He was like, oh, go ahead. I don't care. <laughs> and so I, I went with it. But, but then sometimes sometimes it, it takes it takes a, a certain amount of time to kind of get yes. to the archaeology of our memories. 
Well, that's right. And so like in that case, there's like the freshness of having recorded the memory, um, the event, really. I mean, it was hardly a memory at that point. I was in it, right? With the perspective of time, which, which like this book that I'm, that I'm revising right now, I've revised so many times. Each time you have to like figure out where you're standing to tell the story, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If I tell the story as a pregnant woman, you know, in her in her mid 30s, that's mm-hmm. a different story that I'm going to tell as menopausal woman in her 50s, right? Yeah. Coming into the into the uh, ferocity of my crone years, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like so, so I want to give her total access to telling the story and it with a kind of boldness that I might not have even had even back then. One here's a thing for right. I'm trying to throw out some tips here for your listeners. I don't know Please. if they but I hear from my students that this is something a Christmas thing that I say that's helpful to them is that I think sometimes with especially with the big stories that we need to tell, you know, like whatever version of our war story, like the stories that are are at our core, we or or about our mom or our dad frankly those those are not stories we tell one time right those are not stories that that we have to feel that we only get one shot at right you can return you can write that story when you're 18 you can come back again at 25 you can tell it again at 36 right Mm -hmm. and each time you stand in a different location to return to that moment to examine those events yeah ask a question of them that is urgent to you at that time so that you might move forward so uh, the 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 lesson there is write your story as you'll tell it where you stand and then write it again later if you want. Uh, by the way, I'm I'm just going to make a quick note here. Ana Castillo will be one of the presenters at this year's Let's Just Write conference, March 22nd through the 24th, 2024, at the Warwick Allerton Hotel in Chicago. Thank you so much for your time and oh. your thoughtfulness and your just your your careful reading it really it it makes me happy. I appreciate uh, it. You, you you wrote it. It was a pleasure. Jill Chrisman is one of this year's uh, Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year winners for her beautifully insightful memoir If This Were Fiction, a love story in essays. The website is jillchrisman.com. Hang tight there for just a moment while I take care of a little business and we'll say a proper farewell. My sincere thanks to Gary D. Wilson and to Jill Chrisman uh, and to all of you who listened. If you enjoyed this podcast or have a writer in your life, please share this program with your social community. Visit our podcast archive on the art, marketing, and business of writing at chicagorights.org. The Chicago Writers Association is a 501c3 charitable organization. Visit chicagorights.org. Uh, our theme song, by the way, is uh, from a good friend of mine, Midnight Ride by Dino Lovchich, a, uh, a great musician out of Sarajevo. Uh, and just like this program is available on Spotify and Amazon. Chill, thank you. This was incredible. Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you so much to the Chicago Writers Association. I don't think I've expressed my gratitude fully. What a What an honor. So thank you to all of you for the work that you do.